0: Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. When Donald Trump announced the creation of the Space Force, the sixth branch of the U.S. Armed Forces, it seemed like a joke. Just another pathetic attempt to rally his base.
1: It's going to be important monetarily and militarily, but so important for right up here, the psyche. We don't want China and Russia and other countries leading us. We've always led. We've gone way far afield for decades now, having to do with our subject today. We're gonna be the leader by far. We're behind you a thousand percent. It also seemed
0: like a throwback, a mashup of Star Trek's worst macho motifs and Ronald Reagan's Star Wars program. After all, does Reagan's announcement sound so different?
1: Behind all the numbers lies America's ability to prevent the greatest of human tragedies and preserve our free way of life in a sometimes dangerous world. It is part of a careful long-term plan to make America strong again after too many years of neglect and mistakes."
0: Yet, as Rachel Reederer writes in the November issue, the United States is vulnerable in space exactly because we led the charge. The Earth's orbital belts are crowded with thousands of satellites, many of which have both military and commercial purposes they are vulnerable to signal jamming, physical collisions, and other types of interference that could endanger or seriously disrupt our lives. I spoke with Readerer about the treaty that governs space, the Space Force, and the extent to which we should be suspicious of what the military tells us about the threat of war in space. So this is a very dense piece with a lot of potential implications. So I thought it might be useful to start by breaking down the 1967 Outer Space Treaty. So what it prohibits, how it envisions space, its relevance now, and also how much it doesn't understand about now.
1: Yeah, that is a great place to start. I think one of the most important things to understand about the Outer Space Treaty is that it was written... When we were using space in a totally different way, when the uses of space that are now really widespread were just beginning to be imagined. So in 1967, there were a few satellites. No one had been to the moon. And importantly, it's the middle of the Cold War. So there is this really widespread concern about what it would mean for either the U.S. or the Soviet Union to be the first one to get to the moon and to be able to use the moon as a military base where they could station a nuclear weapon or another weapon of mass destruction. And so because that didn't happen, it sounds sort of far-fetched now, but at the time there were nuclear weapons being tested in the atmosphere, And so the idea of using space as part of a nuclear war was very real. And so that's one of the main thrusts of the treaty is that the moon may not be used for a military base, that nuclear weapons cannot be positioned in space. There is some loftier language about space being an area of peace that should be used for peace and cooperation and the furtherance of science and betterment of mankind. Star Trek. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But in a really practical way, it's about limiting this specific type of weaponry. and, And, you know, as General Raymond has put it a couple of times, the Outer Space Treaty says no nukes in space and the rest is the wild, wild west. And that's because it just simply, you know, there are no rules about commercial entities in space because who could imagine commercial entities arriving in space when, at the time, it was really just these two superpowers. Exactly.
0: And, of course, back then, again, thinking like, oh, this is for the betterment of mankind. Why would a private company have control over that? It would be for the government, would give you these nice things,
1: right? No, certainly. Um, (laughs) But now we're in a very different time. (laughs) We're in such different times. And one thing that is interesting that the people who have really studied this who've like really looked at the the documents from that negotiation one thing that they talk about is that the soviets were like very clear that the idea of private enterprises in space made no sense and would never happen but that the american negotiators were like well maybe uh, and i think that's interesting even though it didn't make it into the treaty <laughs> no that is uh, yeah it's very telling
0: so how does that how does the Outer Space Treaty compare to space power, which is the doctrine that guides the space force? As you write, it contradicts the Outer Space Treaty in some pretty significant ways and in a kind of sneaky ways. But as one of your sources says, the doctrine, quote, certainly doesn't have the force of law and wouldn't override the Outer Space Treaty.
1: Yeah, so this is an interesting, these documents are Intention and that is immediately clear. So, like, the treaty is a treaty. It was signed by more than 50 states. It has the full force of international law. The Space Force Doctrine, called Space Power, is a very specific type of document. It's sort of a statement of purpose and statement of intention authored by a big group of people within the US military. So it doesn't have it doesn't have the force of law, but it is important in setting the goals and making public the intentions of the US military for its operations in and use of space. And and if you read space power, the difference just in tone from the treaty is incredibly striking. This is a document that is about increasing the swiftness and lethality of U.S. forces in space. It is about stating that the way to preserve U.S. safety and U.S. interests is to continue having total domination and, and military supremacy in space. There is The space power doctrine does not share the treaty language about there being any any there's no pretense of space being a site (laughs) of global cooperation and peace. And so that was really striking to me. And I think that part of that is just simply understanding the authorship and the audience for those two documents that one of the uses of military doctrine is, you know, defending The existence of of a new service branch that, you know, Space Force, when it came into being, was a little bit controversial. People made some little jokes about it. So part of it is to reinforce the need for Space Force and the seriousness of national security threats in space. And part of it is you're like really seeing the issue through the lens of the military, who like are trained to see threats and are trained to look for worst case scenarios and to see the solutions to worst case scenarios as coming from the use of force and the show of force. Whereas a treaty is sort of definitionally coming from a different place and is just is written for a different audience, if that makes sense. The contrast is totally striking, though. Yeah, I mean, because some of it,
0: does seem you know the fact that the outer space treaty says like oh you can't go mining for minerals on the moon like the moon belongs to everybody right or you know you can't exploit this the resources out there and then the space force is kind of like yeah we're gonna get up there if somebody tries to take that stuff we'll shoot them down you know like i think that is an important distinction that it's i mean yes the u.s again We won the space race. We have a lot of, you know, there's a lot of stuff up there. There's a lot of satellites, different purposes. We'll get to that in a second. But while the U.S. was building a lot of infrastructure in space, other countries were building ways maybe on the ground or covertly in space to take those resources down, to take that infrastructure out.
1: Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I found so interesting to learn about in in reporting this is the way that space infrastructure has become just a cornerstone of, of U.S. military advantage. And not just in terms of, I don't even mean that just in terms of space weapons, but, but the way that terrestrial, military operations really rely on satellites for communications, geolocation, all of these functions that we now take for granted. But one story that that several people talked to me about was this: the fact that during the first Gulf War, that was really the first time that the U.S. was able to use space resources that other countries simply didn't have. And so when American troops were executing the Operation Desert Storm, they were able to go across stretches of desert that were unroaded that in the past they just simply would not have been able to do without GPS. And so that marked this change and opened up an area where the U.S. was able to use space in a way that gave this huge advantage. And so it does make sense that... While that advantage increased and increased as as US space technologies got more and more sophisticated, that the response from other states and non-state actors was to figure out ways to mess with those the satellites that are, are conferring that advantage. And so you have now this wave of ways to mess with satellites that range from lasers and microwaves and chemical sprays to cyber attacks that would, you know, allow people to mess with the signals from a satellite or to to get to get control of a satellite. Yeah, and so those two things have, have sort of developed in tandem and then add to that this other genre of threat to satellites that's much more dramatic, which is a kinetic anti-satellite weapon, so so an actual projectile that could hit a satellite and destroy it, and and it's interesting. One of the people who I spoke with the most in this piece, Doug Levero, who has worked in space security just for decades and like really knows this arena, he talks about the day when the Chinese t- successfully tested an anti-satellite weapon in 2007 so they shot a projectile that blew up one of their own satellites and created this huge cloud of debris and the way he described the reaction to that was like total panic the sky is falling because this set of resources that we had become so that the US military had become so reliant on was all at once seen to be at risk when it just hadn't it hadn't seemed that vulnerable until that weapons test happened, and then it was this huge paradigm shift and and we've sort of ever since then been living in this new world where yes, the u s has all of these space resources, yes, we're really reliant on them, and at the same time we're aware of how vulnerable they are and that, that yeah, that's the, that's the sort of new reality that, that we continue to be in.
0: Right. And I mean, when uh, I mean, we'll, we'll have to talk about Elon Musk, (laughs) unfortunately, but you know, like the whole thing with Musk is that, you know, he's sort of banking on that romanticized idea of what space is and space exploration and all that sort of thing. But the the fact that we are in space and we have been, and that so much of what we rely upon is because of satellites, and I and and there's this kind of unawareness, because as you said, when the space force was created, people were like, "Ha ha ha, that's so dumb." But my point is simply that you know because of so much of this technology is military or created by the military, or you know spun out of things that were military inventions, they kind of put up quietly. There is this knowledge gap between the everyday public and people who do work for these companies that rely on satellites, you know, or or the military, that this was done very quietly. And now we can't proceed quietly anymore.
1: Yeah, 100%. One thing that that people said to me again and again was like, just because you don't think you're in a space race doesn't mean you're not in a space race. And what they mean w- in saying that is that like space technologies, you know, military and and not military, although in space, that distinction is like so much murkier than it is in other arenas because the the technologies are so overlapping and sometimes the same piece of hardware is used for civilian and military purposes anyway but putting putting that aside what they mean when they talk about us being in a space race without thinking about being a, in a space race is simply that lots of countries right now are pouring resources into new space technologies and are really focused on it you know like China is working on getting to Mars very seriously and you know, if you talk to someone in China, yeah, they'll say that that we're in a space race. But, like, it isn't top of mind for Americans now the way, you know, that it seems to have been in the past. It's not a big policy priority. It's not something that, that we're thinking about. But that doesn't mean that other countries aren't moving forward um really quickly. And... Yeah, one of the things that I think is really interesting is this idea that there are many, many targets that you can choose to focus on in a space race, And you know, the Soviets were the first to put up a satellite. They were the first to put a human into orbit, But the United States knew that it could, or it seemed, it seemed like it had the best chance to get to the moon first, and so that was the way that we framed the space race in the 60s was like the the goal here is getting a man on the moon. And I think that's so interesting that, you know, you could have just as easily chosen one of these other goalposts, but we chose the one that we thought we had a chance of of winning. And so it's interesting now it seems like Mars is the next logical goalpost. And, you know, I guess it's anybody's guess who's going to get there but the Chinese are seem to be working on it a little bit harder than the US. Right. I mean, the question that was at the back
0: of my mind the entire time I was reading this piece is simply how can we trust what the government or a foreign government or you know, the military are telling us about the potential for war kinetic or otherwise? Cuz you know, it's like I mean, not that the US has ever done propaganda or (laughs) overestimated their certainty in certain, I don't know, uh, intelligence gathering. But like, you know, China, the the
1: state runs the media and, you know, of course, they're going to say they're going to Mars, right? Such a good question. (laughs) And I really went on a, (laughs) went through a whole process in reporting this where like at first you know, wading into these stories about, you know, this country has this type of weapon, this country has this type of weapon, you know, North Korea can do this, Iran can do this, India can do this, Japan can do this. There are many, many stories that come up all the time that have this sort of alarmist view of new weapons technologies uh, being developed by countries that are not the United States. And so my my first sort of wave of reporting, I was talking to people and I was asking, like, is this as terrifying as it seems that there is this vast space surrounding the earth that we absolutely need for our daily lives to function? And it's like filling up with these machines that are very vulnerable. And meanwhile every nation on Earth is developing a new way to destroy them, and their rules governing this are decades old. Like, this seems very scary. And it is, and that's true. And it's also true that so much information about space technology and space weaponry is classified. There's a big sort of movement among scholars and sort of the people in like civil society, who are really interested in space but are not part of the military. So groups like the Secure World Foundation, one of their goals is to get information about space declassified, that they say that it's an area where information is classified that that doesn't need to be, and too much of it is classified. So there definitely is a push for more transparency And then the other thing that became clear the more I talked to people is it is true that all of these governments have, you know, increasingly sophisticated arsenals and infrastructure in space. And so that brings with it an elevated level of risk, but it also brings with it an elevated level of deterrence that that you know the more the more you have to lose in space the more incentivized you are to like keep it calm and so in that way i think it's interesting you know there are obviously a lot of people who are much less comfortable with the idea that the united states absolute supremacy in space is sort of shrinking and that other other nations are are gaining on on the u s, but another way of looking at that same situation is that, okay, you know, the more reliant other nations become on space, the more they also are incentivized for there not to be huge clouds of destructive debris, the more incentivized they are to make sure there are no collisions or big conflicts, because that asymmetry of power is also an asymmetry of vulnerability, and so. That was something that I found very soothing. (laughs) The idea that like, yeah, everybody has a lot to lose if things go wrong in space, but also the people who are making decisions, the people who are operating this machinery know how much they have to lose.
0: Right. There is a lot to lose and there is an argument that, you know, it should be protected. However, at the same time, again, just thinking back on US history, overstating a threat in order to get more resources, funding for military purposes, taking that away from other things, that has really bad repercussions. I mean...
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, it was something that I thought a lot about in writing this was that I did not want to be one of the chorus of voices like raising an alarm about... American military vulnerability in a way that, in a way where that information could be, you know, misused and used in support of, you know, arguments to further arsenal building, which is not what I think the solution is. Mm, No, (laughs) but yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And it's interesting. Some of the people who I spoke to about, you know, insiders' reactions to the creation of the Space Force. You know, I specifically was asking them if the budget that it was created with seemed sufficient or if it if, you know, people had felt like this new branch was was getting too much funding or was it getting the short shrift? And the people who I spoke with were like, uh, it was, you know, people are fine with the the budget allocation. And then, you know, each time that they would say that it was pretty non-controversial, they would then stop and be like, listen, no one at the Pentagon doesn't want more money. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that dynamic is is certainly there. Right. And speaking of Avarice. Uh, <laughs> you know,
0: although you do write about Elon Musk's Starlink and SpaceX, as well as other private companies, private space enterprises, ha ha ha, all of the military and defense maneuvering you describe seems to be the work of national governments. Have private entities played a part in these skirmishes? And are there any rules at all? guiding them considering there isn't even like a common definition of what constitutes a weapon in space
1: i know yeah i mean they're they're so intertwined because the private companies are often the ones building the technology that the same sort of idea about there being a wild west definitely applies to private space enterprises as it does to military operations and you know, I did not get really deep into the ways that the interests of those companies are or are not aligned with with military operations, but the one thing that does seem really clear to me is you know, this space is a commons, you know, it doesn't belong to anyone and we see this dynamic that's that's very familiar if you pay attention to what happens to a commons on earth which is it seems like it's there for everyone and nobody owns it but what happens is that the people who have the capital and technology to like to take advantage of that resource that is commonly held and that nobody owns are the the ones who are able to profit off of it. And that seems to be sort of happening in the void. And it seems like it's just a matter of a company, you know, mixing their labor with some resource and and reaping the benefits. Um, But when you look a little closer, what's happening is that public resources in this case services like the United States military tracking satellite movements and issuing warnings about collisions those costs are being borne publicly and then you know this very small group of of corporations who are able to do space tourism or you know make plans for space mining are the ones who are Able to profit off of that, and you know the rest of us remain paying our taxes to, you know, support the infrastructure that makes it safe for them to do that. So, yeah, right. Is there like a
0: is there something roughly equivalent to Blackwater (laughs) as far as you could tell? Because I mean, it's again, because it's like I'm sorry, we've we've been we've been in
1: these forever wars. Yeah, that's (laughs) such a good question. I honestly don't know. Oh my God. Yeah. I don't know the answer to that question. Is there a space Blackwater? I I mean, probably. Probably. We don't know yet. I am not made of stern enough stuff to dive into the existence of space Blackwater. <laughs> uh, but I, you know, I suspect that you are right, that that such an entity does exist. Yeah. Oh. Well. It's okay. A
0: lot of this piece is based on speculation, informed speculation on what might happen. So, well, I wanted to ask about, you know, there are independent groups that are trying to set guidelines. The Wumera Manual and the Manual on the International Law Applicable to Military Uses of Outer Space. Yes. Could you talk about those? And I'm just thinking about again this is kind of pessimistic thinking of things like the rome statute that guides the guy's icc or the you know the geneva convention which the us has never signed so like i mean yeah it would be interesting to talk about their goals and you know what they're doing
1: yeah so there are two projects that are creating manuals that that are basically attempts to put down in writing more specific interpretations of the existing laws of space. And so, and I'm going to like probably talk a little slowly and talking about this because everyone who's writing or many of the people who are writing these manuals and who I spent so much time talking with are lawyers. And they were so specific with me about like, we're not writing guidelines. We are like, we're not creating guidelines out of our own opinions. We are deeply studying the existing laws and the existing practices and then generating a set of rules that derives from them they were they just were so specific about about what their project is and so with the basic goal with both milamos and wumura is to create a manual that like gives some clarity that makes the existing laws of space into sort of more specific rules about what a nation can or can't do and how a given course of action will be interpreted by other actors in space. And so, you know, you have the Outer Space Treaty, which is a pretty simple document and then you have some treaties that came afterwards that that get a little bit more specific and they get a little bit longer and more technical as they elaborate on different elements of space law. And then those treaties stop being created in the 70s. Many people say because of like treaty fatigue that they started to get more complicated and you know geopolitics are changing and and so. So you have these sort of basic and sort of old treaties that exist. And the project of, of the two manuals is to comb through the text of the actual treaties, but also to comb through the records of the negotiations to say, like, what, you know, the treaty maybe says harmful interference is prohibited. But so, okay, what is harmful interference? Like, what specifically counts. If you shoot a satellite with a laser and disable its optics, but you know, the damage is fleeting, is that harmful interference? If you are able to get control of a satellite and just like turn it so that it's not facing the way that it needs to face in order to function, is that harmful interference? And So they're answering that question using, or questions like those, using past practice. And that's where it gets, to me, really interesting, because a lot of new ways of messing with satellites have been met with no response, or at least no response that's public. And so, you know, the findings of these manuals are not public yet. They will become public, you know, hopefully within the next... Year or so, and so it'll be really interesting to see how they interpret the the state behavior and, and where the lines are going to be drawn. My speculation would be that that a lot of uh, that it might codify some tolerance for some anti-satellite behaviors that like you might describe them and say, yes, of course, that's harmful interference. But because they've happened and governments have, have not reacted that, you know, that it is decided that those aren't actually against the law. That's just my speculation. We'll have to wait and see what the actual experts arrive at. But yeah, one of the things that I think will come from the existence of those manuals is a way for the major space powers and other countries who have an interest in space even though they aren't US China Russia India I do think those manuals will be a way for countries and diplomats to have conversations about what's acceptable what's not acceptable and it will bring some like clarity to this space that that can seem just super opaque Right. And it
0: it seems very badly needed. And I mean, is there some other organization or organizations trying to create rules for, you know, private exploration of space? Because I mean... It feels like this wasn't, you know, like three months ago. Was this really a problem? But yes, no, it is is a problem. (laughs) Because as you say in your piece, like, you know, Elon Musk, again, I feel like I'm beating up too much on Musk, but that's impossible. And also, (laughs) he's fine. Bezos, Branson, also not good. I'll just say that. But they're they're shooting a lot of stuff. Musk's company is shooting a lot of new satellites up there. And a lot of the close calls are coming from stuff that he put up there, Yeah, the necessity for everybody to be talking to each other seems extremely important. And again, because there is this divide between public and private, will that ever be addressed? Or is that going to be addressed after something happens?
1: Yeah, that's such a good question. I mean, you know, honestly, a lot of people who I spoke with were pretty, I can't decide whether to say like clear eyed or fatalistic, but Many people who I spoke with were like, this is a problem. The congestion of space is becoming a problem. And the way that people are going to decide it needs to be addressed is when a disaster happens. I actually would be a little more optimistic than that. I do think that enough people who are quite powerful both in the U.S. government and military and and just like private entrepreneurs who are operating in space. Those people have an interest in space congestion being managed. And I do think that we will arrive at some, you know, sensible solutions before like catastrophic cascades of crashes happen. That's uh, that's what I think anyway. I'm not aware of like formal groups that are like lobbying for like, I'm not aware of like NIMBY groups that exist for space or like sort of the you know, like environmental groups that exist for space. Although like they certainly could be out there. And, you know, I mean, I think that part of that is, is, because it's like a hard thing to care about emotionally the idea of space crashes. but there is there are a lot of people talking about the idea of creating lanes for lack of a better word for satellite traffic where currently a satellite operator has to like license and register a satellite with the nation that they are operating out of um, and then those, those satellites are all registered in a giant database that's maintained by the UN and then used around the world, but there isn't a formal system for dictating like where the satellites can go. There are people arguing that we need a sort of traffic system in outer space. And like with one of the ideas that I've heard proposed is that satellite operators would sort of like lease, the rights to a certain orbital pathway. Who they're leasing it from, I don't know. Um, yeah, so I mean, I think it's really complicated. It opens up a lot of questions. I mean, I think we're at the beginning of those conversations, and there are people who are invested in bringing some order. I don't know how it's going to go again just
0: thinking about military history something like the Lieber code which was created by this prussian guy who fought at waterloo which was you know lots of cannonry that's horrifying who then moved to south carolina was horrified by slavery became a professor and during the civil war you know motivated for a lot of reasons but in partly because you know how black captured Union soldiers were just killed by the Confederacy. He created this code that was like, these are the rules by which we will conduct war. No torture, right? protections. And this document was translated into different languages and adopted by other countries. And that was eventually used as the basis for the Geneva Convention.
1: Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow
0: but the us never actually signed off on yeah. the Geneva convention despite the fact that this is something that originated from the civil war right and so in your piece you talk about how well russia and china have this you know treaty or document that they're they're cool with but we won't sign it this is all just sort of leading back to this question of like ego military ego if you want to call it that that could prevent or or could there be something that everyone else agrees to that the u.s just doesn't want to participate in because it's too threatening you know or it's like the commies came up with it even though russia is not the ussr
1: yeah no i mean i think it's actually a lot of this a lot of the agreement conversation reminds me so much of conversations around climate change where it's like you can have all different countries from all over the world engage in conversations about what to do. But the fact of the matter is that there's like a small number of countries who are actually um, have the power to make an agreement meaningful. And in this case, it's really, you know, in the case of, space arms, the countries who would have to sign on to make an agreement meaningful are definitely the U S China, Russia. And then, you know, you have another tier of, of um, you know, India, Iran, others,
0: but is Iran? I mean, cause again, I, I have to push back just like, is
1: Iran actually, you know, the country was a, a devastated by COVID. Oh, yeah. It's definitely not the same tier as the, as the big three. What the, the Chinese and Russian a uh, treaty that has been proposed. What the American space thinkers who I talked to about this said was like, it's, you know, it would put the U S at a disadvantage because it limits, it limits the kind of technologies that, that the U S has, but it doesn't limit the kind of technologies that, that Russia and China have. I don't know how <laughs> that's a hard um statement for me to evaluate what is really clear is that like there's a lack of trust and there's a just a lack of desire to enter into a new treaty nobody wants to limit their own options limit their own arsenal and so like there's just this really fundamental stance Right now, towards treaties as an instrument, which I personally like, find a little bit disappointing. But I do think that that's why things like the manuals are important. Is that it's something that uh, is able to provide a little bit of clarity now in the in the climate that exists now. You know, one thing that really stands out to me is a conversation that I had with Joan Johnson Freeze, who's a military scholar and an expert on China and also on space war and politics and one thing she said to me was a question that she always asks people is is there anything that China could do in space that would not be seen by the US as a threat and what is what is that and you know her answer is no that it's it's because of the distrust that exists any new technology is seen as a threat and this group the center for strategic and international studies held a series of like not quite war games but like thought experiments where a bunch of U.S. security experts got together and talked through a bunch of different scenarios about what would you do if um, various things happened in space and the scenarios are things like a Russian satellite gets too close to an American satellite that's involved in nuclear command and control. And the Russians say that their satellite, that they've just lost control of it and it's, it's an accident. But what's happening is that the U S satellite is being blocked or interfered with in some way. What do you do? And, and they, they, you know, game out these different scenarios of how do you respond? And, One thing that is so clear in all of those conversations is like, you can't tell in space what somebody's intentions are. You can see what's happening, but you, you can't tell why it's happening. And so any decision has to, you know, is either going to require some like interpretive leaps or some like Frank conversations. And yeah. So the like idea of, I kept on thinking of this, uh Ani DeFranco lyric actually that's like every tool is a weapon if you hold it right. Like, oh shit, you're right. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, yeah, that's I think there's I think there's a lot of that that you you're looking at space infrastructure and like, is that a tool or is that a weapon? How you make that assessment just like involves so much of your like worldview and and if we were spending the amount of energy and capital on like diplomacy to go hand in hand with the development of these technologies. I think that is something that would be really great.
0: Yeah, no, it's um, quit quit screwing around and just make star trek real (laughs) could you i know i know you guys like there was mirror and they were like doing stuff with screws they're like oh yeah i can use a screw in space whatever do that
1: but good (laughs) now like what's wrong come on nobody wants this yeah yeah i hope i would i would i would love that where is the federation we need it bring it
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah all right well, thank you so much. This was fascinating to sort of break a lot of this stuff out.
1: Oh, man. Thank you for your great questions. This was really fun.
0: You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save.